0: Welcome to the Writer Dojo with your host, Steve Diamond. That's me. And Larry Korea.
1: Remember when I
0: promised to kill you last, Sully? I lied. Today's episode Writing Action Round (laughs) 2.
1: Welcome back to the Writer Dojo.
0: That was in honor of our topic today. That's
1: right. Now, remember last time we started our two part action extravaganza and uh the thing that we left you with was to write an action sequence from the same action sequence from two different point of views where the flavor of the character really shifted and changed how the scene was portrayed and i think larry that's going to really lead us into um the beginning of our discussion of of you know writing action part two. And that's, what is your action scene doing for your book?
0: That's a really good question. Anytime you have a scene, and this is action or anything else, it needs to serve a purpose. It needs to accomplish multiple things. One of the things I like to use for action is like, let's say that I have a revelation in the story that I want to give anyway. I could just have them walking along and having a conversation and have the big reveal, right? Yeah, that's great. And that's cool and all. Or I can have that same reveal during the middle of a car chase. Mm. You know? Instead of walking along, they're driving along rapidly, you know, getting shot at, glasses breaking, window, you know, the mirror shatters. They hit another car. They careen off. Oh, my gosh. It's because of this. What? And it's like big revelation. And there's like a couple paragraphs of the reader going, what the crap? Wow. This really amazing thing has just happened. Oh, but then we're back to a car chase, you know? So it's drawing them along. It's, it's like you could always do something boring or you could do something interesting. Now that said, we've talked about a pacing before. If every scene is excitement and explosions then that becomes the norm, and so that becomes boring. It's like we we talk about the Michael Bay movies where it's yeah. explosion, 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 explosion. You get tired of explosions. This is the same principle. So you, if you have everything as an action scene, well, something is being revealed or characters being revealed or learning about the plot or whatever, that's going to become boring and samey. So you space these out, you put the action sequences in, you bump stuff up.
1: Okay, So so when it comes to using action scenes to... Further, I mean, I, I, I guess what we can say, what we're trying to say is, um, we can use the action scenes to further any piece of your book that you need, whether we're talking about character development, um, the actual honest to goodness story that's going on, um, you know, maybe, maybe religious plots within the, within the book. I mean, you can use an action scene to further any angle. Within any of those those areas,
0: and sometimes you can actually use those, and it goes back to that that thing about plot: taking it up, take it down, take it up. It's a sine wave. If you think about, it, like, it was interesting. You you mentioned religious. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we got into that a little bit in um, Servants of War. Right. So we have an action sequence. Things are happening. It's very dark, very bleak, and all of a sudden, blip. There's a magical moment where our hero is alone and talking to an ancient god. Yep. And everything else is stopped. And it's just him and the ancient God. So we went from like pretty intense leading up to like, you know, terror. And there's a conversation. So we just stop the action for a second. We have a conversation. It sets that refresh button. The reader goes, (gasps) takes a breath and starts reading this conversation. Only the conversation is even more menacing and dangerous.
1: Well, that, yeah, that conversation really picks up. It's a different sort of tension. And yep. it's a different sort of dread that's being introduced. And, and that's where we're, we're revealing some major, like, holy mm-hmm. crap moments.
0: And then once you go through that and you have your character has a chance to, and in this case, our main character is like, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to, like, stand by my friends. I'm going to, I'm going to say what I believe. And he does. He does. And the bad guy's like, well, so be it. And then, boom, we're right back into the action sequence. And so, you guys, you change up the flavors. You know, it's like you don't want to eat the same thing for too long. You want to get something else, and you want to kind of mix it up. And we'll talk about that a lot more later. But it's it's you give them this stuff, and you give your characters a chance to shine. You give your characters a chance to do cool stuff, and action scenes put them in danger. Mm-hmm. This is something we've not talked about, but one of the things about action sequences is there needs to be stakes, and there needs to be danger. There needs to be consequences to failure. And, you know, it depends on the action sequence because if you have, you could have an action sequence that's not life or death. It could just be something embarrassing. Like if you don't escape, you're going to get captured and it's you're going to look like an idiot, right? Like you should have been spying, you know, or whatever. Or you could have a sequence where it's two dudes, it's not life or death, but they are fighting as in a training thing. And I've done that a lot in like Son of the Black Sword. So I'll have two guys sword fighting, but it's not to the death. You know, they just have practice swords and they're hurting each other. But there's dialogue as this is happening. You see what I'm saying? But it's well, still action.
1: And, and we did a little bit of that in Servants of War also. I mean, I'm thinking of like the Gollum training scenes. Oh,
0: the Gollum training scenes. I would actually count some of those action sequences. Oh, they definitely are. Uh, and we'll get into different types of action sequences in a bit. But So we got this kid who's just basically this illiterate farm boy gets put in this giant magical robot suit and has to learn how to drive it. And it is actually dangerous. And there is stakes. If he fails here, uh, he could get killed.
1: Well, and we show what happens when you fail.
0: Yeah, we actually have another character who screws up big time. Yeah. And and uh, I don't want to spoil it, but he screws up big time in this giant magical piece of heavy machinery and, and
1: just... It goes very poorly for him.
0: And the thing is, I mean, it's awful for this guy, but also for the army, The you know, the commander is like, what the crap? This has taken a perfectly useful... <laughs> you know, ro uh, object off the line. I mean, it's going to take months to repair this. Screw up, you idiots. Yeah. And the guy's dead, <laughs> you know, but he's but the, replaceable. And the
1: interesting thing about that, that scene, Larry, is, is that it, it, it furthers several things within that story. One, character. Yep. Okay. Because we're, we, we go into, and again, I'm, I'm going to speak a little bit of generalities because you should be reading this book, people. Come on, son. So <laughs> you could learn a lot from it. You could definitely learn a lot from it. Well, I mean, if, if you, if you literally wanted to, to take the book and read that scene, um, that we're talking about, it's about mm, quarter to a third of the way through the book. Um, you actually could dissect it and learn from it in terms of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And that's that this scene furthers several pieces of the story. Yes. Okay. It is not a useless scene by any stretch of the imagination.
0: No, every scene needs to have some elements. Um, and the more you can get, the better, as long as you don't obviously overdo it and, it, yeah. and you're, you've saturated the reader with too much information.
1: Well, like, so this scene, we further character mm-hmm. with, the main, with the main character, Larry.
0: And, and his commanding officer. And his commanding
1: officer. Um, the fear that people are feeling, the dread that people are feeling and you're planting the seed in people in the readers heads of all this bad stuff that's happening right now all these characters are going to face that and worse once they get into actual wartime also, so you're foreshadowing
0: the exhilaration of the driving a giant cool suit of robot armor yep and also and we we talk about take it up take it down We specifically took it down a couple times to explain for a paragraph or two how something works.
1: Yep, and so you mechanically speaking, you're helping the reader understand how this world functions, how these things work.
0: When we get later into the more intense action sequences where every move is life or death, we are not stopping to explain. That's right. This is how you shoot the gun from inside the suit. Yep. Because we've already explained that. So then we can just get to – we're avoiding the checklisting. Yep. Instead of saying Hilarion disconnected his hand from the controls to grab the charging because lever, pull it back, to feed another yeah. round from the hopper. We yeah. don't have to stop and say that because we've already we explained say, it.
1: just say, he recharged the gun.
0: Yep. And he you know obliterated 25 dudes. Right. Because that's what he does. <laughs> you know? And so it's like you get those little bits in there. And – um. It's interesting because we've established rules. Yeah. So if you have earlier action sequences, especially if you're writing something where somebody has magic powers or they're a superhero, you use your earlier action sequences that have lower stakes to establish more rules of how your stuff works. Yeah. That way when you get to the more pivotal, big, intense ones, that stuff's already understood by the reader. So if I'm saying, okay, so the, the suit can do this and this and this, then later on when we have Alarian getting better, we can show that this dude has improved because they have now seen an earlier action sequence. This, You know, you see this all the time is Kung Fu movies, martial arts movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as it's, it's such a trope, but we do it because it works. So you have your lower stake action sequences, you know, um, uh, the Karate Kid is fighting the bullies, then the Karate Kid is fighting... He's training with Mr. Miyagi, he's, also an action sequence. He's standing on a. He's standing on a. A, 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 a pier post or whatever they post. call that. I don't know. I'm not an ocean guy. Uh, he's kicking. And then you got the final fight where the stakes are high.
1: And he's using. He's just using all of the things that are coming.
0: He's using all the stuff that they showed earlier. The you,
1: you and I are both fans of, of the OG Top Gear.
0: Oh, I love. Yeah, I love. Okay. Yeah.
1: Do you remember? I don't know if you remember this episode. There's an episode where um, they were working with. It, they were kind of sort of working with a film crew to do a chase scene in the cars. <gasps> yes. Do you remember this one?
0: Yes, and I've actually watched the cop movie they made.
1: Right, but remember- The, the Sweeney. The, there you go. It's called The Sweeney. And the joke of the episode was every like they're they're in the middle of this car chase, intense car chase. And they're like, but look, what we need to describe in the middle of this scene is how the handling of this specific car makes it so that they can take these sharp turns to get away from the car. Because, look, there's no realistic way that that car A that's trailing and chasing wouldn't catch up to car B like that's just silly. So we need to describe the whole. Th- and and so they shoot it. They, they shoot that scene. Uh, and they, they kind of intersplice in, the, in in within the scene, like they're explaining exactly how the car works because blah, blah, And it's terrible. It's
0: so funny because I remember watching that.
1: It's it's hilarious because and, you know exactly what they're doing.
0: Yeah, because it's like, well, if we're going to do this, we because Jeremy Clarks is like, well, that would not be able to go around this corner like that unless you engage the traction control. So we have to show how you engage the traction control. And he's like. Reading from the manual, and the two guys are driving the car during the action. So we need to hold the blue button for three seconds.
1: <laughs> One, two, three. And then they're back. Tracking controls.
0: And, track and, control. and then, it, then it cuts to, like, the cool screechy tire yeah. going. See, and the thing is, when they did the final, and then they showed the actual final. Right. The, uh, real, the, real, the real scene. The real scene from the movie. And it's just, you know, all the cool, intense going around corners. Because that stuff's all explained. Top Gun. If you guys if oh. you guys have seen Top Gun Maverick, have you seen Top Gun Maverick it's yet? It's so
1: good. I really enjoyed Dude, it. Dude, it's so good.
0: Top Gun Maverick is another perfect example. Intense, important uh scenes all throughout it, but it establishes the rules to make the later scene. Because that way when they're like, you know, doing the, the Canyon, you know, the yeah, Death yeah, Star yeah. run. Yeah. Yeah. And they're pulling the massive Gs and doing the inverted flip and coming down and, you know, they gotta have two miracles. All that stuff is already known.
1: Well, and they've established the risks. They've established the stakes through through errors Yeah, that the pilots make earlier.
0: Well, when they had like... Uh, Dude, I
1: love that movie. It was freaking When awesome. they had
0: a plane go down with the bird strike. That yeah. was one of those action sequences. And it was totally random. Yep. It was beautiful. And it, it it raised the stakes and it made you think about the characters. It told you a lot about the characters.
1: Well, and the, man, the tension. The tension in all of those scenes was was so well handled. The scene
0: where Maverick and Rooster are dogfighting and they're in like that DNA helix towards the ground thing where they break the the the,
1: the, the floor the, the, hard the hard deck. Floor. Yeah, hard deck. Yeah, there we go. I'm not
0: an aviator, I know. And uh, but there's that, that cool, you know, cobra twisty maneuver they're mm-hmm. doing and so whoever break whoever panics first is going to is going to get shot by the other guy, right? What a great moment of character development in an action
1: scene. Well, and it's not just character development for one character or the other. It was that, but it was also just a perfect example showing the tension between the two characters and the history between them. Like everything you need to know about those two characters and their history, you can get it in that 30 second scene.
0: That is so cool. Honestly, that was right. And that's a perfect example. So it's not just action for. Dude, action we could sake. totally
1: geek out about that movie for like an hour. You it's know, honestly, so good from
0: a from a writing perspective, from a storytelling perspective. They do
1: so many things right.
0: It was super tight. Yeah, it was super tight. Yeah, and so the fact that they did that, everything had a point, which is interesting because if if a, if a sequence has a point, you it lingers with you. Yeah, not just for the cool flying effects, not just for the cool. It looked cool because there's plenty of bad movies that had scenes that looked cool and were cool.
1: Looking but, at you, Last Jedi.
0: Yeah, but do you remember any of them?
1: No, because that's some, that movie's crap.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there's some beautiful stuff. Like I remember the theater. I mean, my, my first thought, like the theater, was, like, "Well, that looked cool." Well, it's
1: like Prometheus, right? When you and I left oh, Prometheus, Prometheus, exactly the same looked thing. Cool,
0: but I mean, it was all pretty pointless. Yeah, and super vapid at the end of it. it was, yeah, so you don't want vapid action sequences. Your action sequences have to matter. You have to have stakes. You have to have development and growth or failure.
1: Generally, I mean, you need both.
0: I mean, because you look at Maverick, there was scenes of growth and failure.
1: Oh yeah, All, right from the very start. And when you
0: make dudes fail, then their successes matter.
1: Well, shoot the opening scene of Maverick. Oh, with the... is him succeeding and then failing hard.
0: Yeah, and you know, blowing up the super jet. Oh my gosh! You know, and then landing in Idaho or whatever. Yeah. he doesn't <laughs> even know where he's at. Earth.
1: Yeah, oh, was... such a good scene. So. I, I think the point here, everyone, is that you, you can tell how Larry and I very suddenly got very geeked out about really good examples of action scenes that furthered plot and character story. Like, that really took everything that you were trying to accomplish and not just, like, helped it forward, but propelled it forward. That actively shoved it forward into your face, right? Because that's the point of the action scene. It's, it's doing the same thing as every other scene. It's just doing it typically faster and more violent. Yep. Right?
0: It's when the reader's attention has started to drift for whatever reason, you bring them right back.
1: Yep. All right. So when we come back, we're going to continue this topic. Um, uh, very likely we'll talk about Top Gun again because it's awesome. We'll be right back.
2: Dr. Megan McAllister was already an unusual human, NASA astronaut, professional astronomer, polymath, when she encountered the man in the black suit that night in West Texas. What Division I agent Echo didn't know when he recruited her for Alpha Line was that she was even more special, but he'd find out soon enough. Award-winning author Stephanie Osborne uses the urban legend of the beings who show up at UFO sightings and make the evidence disappear to craft her vision of the universe we don't know about. Division One chronicles this universe through the eyes of recruit Megan McAllister, AKA Omega, and experienced partner Echo as they handle everything from lost alien children to extraterrestrial assassination, to galactic invasion, and more. Alpha and Omega is available in Nook, Kindle, and trade paperback wherever fine books are sold. Pick up your copy today.
1: And welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoy our discussion so far. And, uh, I think the biggest takeaway from the first half of that episode was um, if you haven't seen Top Gun yet, you're missing out.
0: It's a great... It's really freaking good. It's a great kind of masterclass on action writing.
1: It really is. Now, Larry, what, I want to go into the next part of this. And and what we were kind of talking about in the break was, um, was kind of your next point. And, that's, uh, and, and I want to hear exactly what you mean by this. And that's that in real life, people don't have hit points. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, I've used this a lot. In real life, people don't have hit points. And what that means is that when a lot of us writers who haven't done actual violence in real life write an action scene, we tend to screw up a lot of stuff based upon our novice understanding of reality. And you can get away with that as long as everybody who's reading your stuff is as equally clueless or more clueless than you are. But what happens is if you have anybody who has any sort of clue and they read it and it falls apart. And the reason I use hit points as an example is we've all seen this in movies, we've all seen this in books, where people will get an injury that like, you know, in real life you would just like die or be horribly mangled. Yeah. But, but they they had a, a they had
1: a good they had a good nap and and walked it off in the show.
0: Do you remember Speed, the movie oh, yeah. Speed? Mm-hmm. Shoot the hostage. And so the hostage is Keanu Reeves' friend. I think it was Jeff Daniels, if I remember right. It's been a long time since I watched that. And so he's being held hostage by Dennis Hopper. And he's like, shoot the hostage. So Keanu Reeves shoots the hostage in the inner thigh. I remember watching this. And he shoots Jeff Daniels in the inner thigh. And I was like, dude, you just killed your best friend. (laughs) Because, guys, in real life, you have this giant artery that runs through your inner thigh called the femoral artery. And if you sever that. You're dead. You're in deep trouble if you don't get a tourniquet on that. And even sometimes that that artery will crawl back up into your yeah, pelvis. Yeah, it don't matter. You're, you're, yeah, your host. It's a it's a big artery, guys. Like, and so you lose a ton of blood really quick. So that's be like the last place you'd want to shoot somebody. The other one that always kills me is like in movies. Somebody gets shot in the shoulder, and they grimace. They get yeah. shot like like kind of like you know by your clavicle. Yeah, right here. Yeah, uh, oh, I'm pointing.
1: I'm pointing. Yeah, we're guys we're pointing
0: on a podcast that you guys can see. But we're, yeah. But that's where your brachial artery runs, and it's, like, you know, um, really big. It's about as big around as your finger. (laughs) It's this big, honking artery. And if you sever that, you're going to bleed to death really quick. And it's in a place where it's really hard to stop bleeding. One of the shows that actually gets this right is Bosch. Uh, There's a season, and there's a knife guy, uh, Javi, and he kills this kid. Oh yeah, uh, and, and but Bosch is looking at the body. He's like, he Season. is it because he gets hits, he gets hit across the chest and the neck.
1: Season three or four, oh, I can't remember. But Name he just but
0: Bosch four. is sitting there with crate and Barrow, and he's like, yeah, he hit the bleeders. Yep, you know, it was just a great little bit. So, guys, what I'm saying here is, um, in real life, you know, the human body does certain things. Now, we talked uh, earlier about like if you're writing Magic Princess Sparkle Adventure. Then you can violate all that stuff and have fun with it.
1: I get, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're writing. Yeah, right.
0: Uh, Marvel superheroes. Okay, obviously. Yeah,
1: Iron Man would be dead like four hundred times already. Yeah. yeah, just from just from the the sheer G-force and concussion. Ooh, the, and the
0: deceleration. Uh-huh. <laughs> he'd be
1: <laughs> he'd be red sludge yeah. in his suit.
0: So there's stuff like that, but it's once again, it's all about the audience you're writing for, you know. So you can do the superhero landing where a dude jumps off a roof and lands on his knee because, you know, you're writing super. So so if I'm writing Jake Sullivan, I actually do a Superman jump from the sky. It's set in the 1930s, so we do quite literally do it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a man, but it's in Japanese, so people don't realize that it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a man. As Jake Sullivan, like, jumps from space and crashes through a giant crater in the ground— the dude controls gravity, and he can make his body super dense, so it, like, makes sense, right? Yeah. So it all depends on what you're writing. Um, but if you're writing something that's more realistic, it behooves you to learn stuff. One of the best classes I ever took, um, and most people wouldn't have access to something like this, but I took a wound ballistics class. It was from uh, a Department of Homeland Security guy who going through just – it was basically eight hours of autopsy slides and watching people get shot. and And we did rifles, pistols, shotguns. Uh, we did shotguns after lunch, which is great Oh, because it was like, seems oh. Seems like
1: a poor choice for you.
0: Yeah, it was a poor choice because I'm not a squeamish guy, right? I've slaughtered a lot of cows in my life. <laughs> and uh, I was I was looking at that and I was like, oh, this is the most disturbing thing I've ever seen. And – um, but you, you you can learn a lot of this stuff from the internet too if just by like doing some basic searches. You know, there's the old joke about uh, I'm not a terrorist. I'm a writer for the FBI or NSA yeah. that is like observing this Google search. Uh-huh. But a lot of the stuff you can look up to get your factoids right. It kind of brings us to the thing about, like, fake it till you make it and expertise. You're writing for a certain audience. If you're writing, like, my audience, I was at one point the number one best-selling author in Baghdad and Bagram, okay, during the war. My audience expects meticulous, like, I mean, my stuff has to be spot-on accurate with weapons, and people who use them and the stuff that happens to you. And so one of the things because I write fantasy with this kind of stuff is I usually implement some form of magical cheating. Yep. Because otherwise I put my characters through the ringer. If I was realistic, they would go through the first fight scene and then spend the rest of the book recovering. You know, yeah, cuz in hospice. I'm, I'm a 46-year-old dude. If I try to do some of the action sequences <laughs> uh, from Monster Hunter, dude, I would be going to the chiropractor for the next month.
1: <laughs> dude, we're old. Like, you, you know, you get out of bed and half your body cracks and pops and the other half goes limp and you're just like, "Well, cr- crap. Well, I need physical therapy." Why? Well, because I got out of bed today. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I spent I spent 6 months in physical therapy. Because I decided to lift weights in front of my son like I was still in my twenties.
1: <laughs> well, I, I had shoulder surgery because I threw a baseball.
0: <laughs> that's worse than mine. You know I was at least curling seventy five pounds in each hand, so I looked pretty badass. I, you know? I, I did I did, I did throw the baseball. I did throw the
1: baseball, you know, running up on it, barehanding it and sidearming it. Oh, that's, that's cool, man. So I mean, That's look, totally worth the it two was surgeries. totally worth the two surgeries. That I, no, it was not. <laughs> no, it definitely it. wasn't. Yeah. So one out of ten would not recommend.
0: So there's 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 element of realism like that. So unless you're writing something hyper, okay. So John Wick. Oh yeah. I love John Wick.
1: Everyone loves John Wick.
0: However, John Wick would be dead 152 times over.
1: Oh yeah, it's a, it's a superhero movie.
0: Yeah, it's a superhero movie. So, if you're writing that kind of thing, then by all means, you can totally do that.
1: The only realism we care about in John Wick is like, are his reloads.
0: Oh, man. They're so quick. Yeah. I say they're that, good. I say that as a dude chasing a fast coin. Yeah. Which, only the gun nerds know what that means, but I'm I'm within 0.5 of a second. I'm going to get that Almost. damn coin. Well, you got your new gun. Uh, that's actually where I bought it, specifically. <laughs> uh, I want that damn coin. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a coin chaser. But- Uh, so yeah, that John Wick has like some really cool stuff like that, but he would be dead. Uh, Die Hard. I think Die Hard's like a perfect movie. One of the greatest movies ever. And, you know, John McClane straight up gets shot in the shoulder enough to have an exit wound that sprays blood all over a door as he runs by. Right?
1: Yeah. That kind of blood loss and trauma would really screw you up. That would
0: really screw you up. However, at the end of the movie, you know, he comes out, he kisses his wife, she punches out a reporter. They get in the limo with Argyle and just drive off to Christmas music. It's like, dude, you'd be getting in the ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking from the blood loss from his feet. That said, so it all depends on, of course, the kind of audience you're writing for and what you can and can't do. Um,
1: I always look at it this way, Larry. And that's when, when I pick up a book, like there's expectations with it. Okay. So if I pick up something that's like military science fiction. I expect certain things, and that's, f- in general, um, I expect a lot of action, and I expect the action to be accurate enough to where I think, oh, okay, yeah, this person did his research. When I pick up a Larry Correia book, and there's gunplay in it, I pretty much understand there's, an, there's a kind of an implicit promise that that gun stuff is going to make sense. Yeah. That it's going to be that it's going to be grounded in a portion of reality. Now, what you talked about earlier, where you can put like magic cheats within it, depending on the type of story you're writing, that's fine.
0: As long as you establish it with the reader, you've kind of like made a deal.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, if I'm reading uh, if if I'm reading a Harry Bosch novel, like I trust that Michael Connelly. Did his research, and I know he did because he was a freaking beat reporter for yeah, years and years He's going to get
0: the police procedural stuff right. Absolutely. He's going to get the the murder right. Mm-hmm. He's going to get the city right.
1: Yeah, and so all of these things, uh, like you were talking about earlier, that that really drives. Like, who are you aiming this book at? Um, if if I'm if I'm aiming Werewolf Cop at people who like police procedural type stuff, well then by golly, I better get a lot of police procedural stuff right yep. in there. And some of that's going to depend on, you know, it'll depend on county to county, state to state.
0: Is there an urban fantasy that gets police procedural stuff right? No. Huh, it's an interesting niche, Steve.
1: Quite frankly, there just isn't that much that actually delves into it. It's almost always PI related. Yeah. And so PIs are a little bit more loosey-goosey. Yeah, well, um, with Harry Dresden just kind and of... And then Harry Dresden, know. he's like, well, I'm magic and parkour, so suck it. <laughs> it's so good, though. <laughs> oh, no, you're right. Um, That's
0: a good example as far as the action, though, uh, Dresden Files. Mm-hmm. Dresden Files definitely has certain levels like 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 that it sets. Uh, actually, Jim does a really good job with action, and he's got the characters, their stakes. Uh, Jim kills a lot of characters, too. Well, and he... And they always matter.
1: And and the action scenes. I'm
0: still kind of mad about the half ogre or half troll girl from like like the third or fourth one.
1: Oh, I'm still mad about Michael.
0: Yeah, we're not. So hey, we're, we're, we're we will stop on yeah. Punk. We're stopping on. We're, nope, nope. we're stopping on spoilers.
1: Hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, the thing is, is what I really like about Jim is that his action sequences have evolved as his character and story has evolved. Um,
0: well, the has become way more powerful. He's too.
1: become more powerful. The stakes have increased commensurately. Right. Yep. Um, but there's like, like there's some cool scenes. I'm thinking right around like book seven and eight, where there's action scenes that involve a lot of characters who are not action oriented characters. Mm-hmm. And, and they add this really cool, different flavor butters. to it. Yeah, butters. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. And, you know, I, I love that Jim does that. Because going back to everything that we've been talking about before, um, in the previous episode, in this episode, that's, that's how you can use these action scenes to your benefit. Um, and, and look, Jim, Jim is a martial artist, you know? And so he understands a lot of these sorts of things. Uh, and, and I believe that that's kind of what, one of the things that we were, you know, we've kind of been discussing it off and on, but but let's kind of hit it really hard, really quick. And that's, um that's your expertise, bringing your expertise into yeah. it.
0: I, I, like I've been able to use my gun background to really good effect in my writing career.
1: I've been able to use my fear of sharks really well.
0: Yeah, actually, because like, yeah, they take you right, right in fear. Yeah everybody's got something they know a lot about Mm -hmm. and capitalize on that and the areas that you don't know and you want to write about then you need to go and learn as much as you can because what's going to happen is the more you learn about that topic the more cool stuff you're going to be able to put into those scenes um and so like i don't know sword fighting right i'm not a sword fighter Right. And so when I did Son of the Black Sword, that was a whole new world for me, but I wanted to do an epic fantasy that requires, you know, sword fighting. So what I did is I made sure I enlisted uh, actually Tony Weisskopf because Tony was married to Hank Reinhardt, who yeah. was one of the leading <laughs> experts in the world yeah, on the topic. Yeah, he knew all the things. He knew all – he was – like I said, he's one of the top, top experts of this in the world. Ever, and he's one, really one of the guys that brought about the Western martial arts revolution of of Americans sword fighting, right? Mm-hmm. And so Hank was the guy behind that. And so Tony was able to hook me up with uh, Wit, who is one of his um, protégés. And so basically when I sent in a Son of the Black Sword novel, uh, Wit goes over that, uh, every single bit of edged combat and, and hand-to-hand combat, and he's like, it either passes the Wit smell test or it doesn't. And because it's a magical world with guys that have some like pretty high-powered inhuman abilities – uh, because of their you know backgrounds their magical backgrounds I can I can cheat so there's that element but like like anything that's like real people versus people it either passes his wit smell test or it doesn't and if he has a problem he'll be like hey that's not right that that's not how you would do this uh that's not how you would use a polearm in this situation you would change it
1: the funny thing is the very first professional edit I ever got was from Tony Uh, And it was for my uh, my uh, samurai story that's in the Bane Big with the monsters. Tony
0: knows swords,
1: and and I had a couple sword fighting scenes, and for the most part, my edits were pretty light on that story from Tony. I mean, super ridiculously valuable. Um, she gets a lot of mileage out of her squiggles, but there was there was a couple that she was very very specific when it came to some of the sword fighting and stuff and the blade work that I was using in the story, and she's like, no. No, that's not how that works. Fix this now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's very cool. Like, look, guys, you, you can't know everything. No. Okay. But there's someone out there who does know all the things about one particular subject that, that you're deficient in.
0: I've been the, uh, I've been. You've the, been gun guy for me. I've been gun guy for a lot of people. Um, and some some people they just know I mean this this their background and so they're gonna be able to write it and not need help. But if you need help, there's no shame in asking. And honestly guys, there's a lot of people who are really willing to help. Uh, they're, they're willing to help people with their books. And be careful though, who you ask, make sure they are actually a bona fide expert and not just somebody who's blowing smoke on the internet because I'll actually make your book worse. If you know you're writing a martial arts kind of thing and you grab some bullshito, uh, you know, it's the kind of guy's master kin makes videos making fun of kind of thing. You know, if you're writing gun stuff and you go and you used uh, dust, you know, Detroit Urban Survival. I was going to say Urban tactic, Survival. Yeah. That's exactly
1: what I was thinking.
0: And you and you put that in a book, people are just going to laugh at you. Okay, yeah. so get your, make sure you get an actual expert who knows what they're talking about.
1: You know, I remember I was talking with Dan Wells about this once when he was researching I'm Not a Serial Killer. And he's like, Steve, he's like, it turns out you know, it's always good to ask for help. He's like, but sometimes when you ask for help, it comes across very poorly. Like when you go to a mortuary and you say, Hey, I'm really interested in seeing the dead bodies that you put in here and how, how you do your work. Sometimes they don't like that, Steve. Um, so, you know, you you gotta be, you gotta be careful, make sure you you know what you're doing, approach them, approach people. Right. In general, like you said, most people are more than happy to share their expertise with you. Now, Larry, we were going to talk about mixing things up in action, but you know we're out of time.
0: Yeah, you know, I think what we should probably do, since we are the masters of this universe, that's right. I think action needs to be three parts.
1: Done, done, done. To be continued.
0: dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea, produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios theme song
1: word mercenaries by Craig Nybo new episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content if you enjoyed this podcast you can help
0: support us by going to anchor.fm slash writer dojo by leaving a five-star rating and review and by helping to spread the
1: word To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to
2: questions at writerdojo.com.
1: I had shoulder surgery because I threw a baseball.